Good morning, LBC. All right. Uh, before I make a move, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have placed each one of us in a nation where we are free to proclaim the gospel. We thank you that we can do so without fear of persecution, without fear of execution. And Lord, I pray that uh, you will speak in and through your word this morning, prepare us to take a stand for this gospel in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile towards it. Lord, build in us boldness, build, a, build in us wisdom, build in us courage, uh, and Lord, help us to stand fast in the truth that we find in your word. Lord, before we get into your word, uh, we do wish to lift up Caleb and his family as he is away speaking in a conference in Pennsylvania right now. Lord, use him mightily to, to challenge the pastors that are there, the families that are there. Uh, help him to speak rightly from your word and to equip them with things that they need to hear to be more effective for the kingdom. Lord, we also want to pray for Cornell, that you would take care of him while he's away from us. Lord, mend his body, please. Uh, Lord, we pray for his comfort. We pray for his family. Uh, Lord, help us as his spiritual family to take care of his physical family and Lord draw our attention to, to needs that they may have that they might not even want to tell us about. Uh, Lord help us to tend to them and to serve them well. And uh, Lord now as we approach your word help us to give it the respect that it demands. Lord help us to be changed by it and uh, Lord by your help uh, I do ask that uh, you would enlist your Holy Spirit to make a supernatural change in each one of us, uh, conform our thinking um, and uh, everything about us to the character of Christ now. And guide us through your word now, and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, last week, uh, Caleb began preaching on Acts 20. I'm going to pick up where he left off. Uh, starting in verse 13, and we are going to go to the end in verse 38. Um, I'm also going to take the approach that he took last week, and that is, instead of reading through it first and then going back and preaching through it, we're just going to preach through it as we read it. Uh, to give you a little context, um, in verses 1 through 12, we see that Paul is in Macedonia and in Greece, and he's picked up uh, seven travelers with him. Um, they are Christian Gentile men, um, and uh, along with Luke, and they're now going to travel to meet him. Along the way, we see Paul uh, raise Eutychus, who passed out during the sermon. Again, a warning to you all. Um, and uh, he healed him from the dead, raised him from the dead. And then they went on about their business. And what we do is we pick up here in verse 13, where it says, But going ahead to the ship, we, again meaning Luke, and uh, this list of men uh, back in verse 4, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. 
seems mundane enough, but there are some important things here. One is, uh, this is about 20 miles if you're a crow. Uh, it's 31 if you're human, uh, because it's not a straight line from A to B here. Um, and again, the we includes Luke along with this group of Gentile believers. And by the way, they're carrying some money with them to give to the, uh, the, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem uh, who have been persecuted. Verse 14, and when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. This is another approximate 40 miles, give or take. Uh, so now we're traveling about 71 miles on foot. 15, and sailing from there, we, we came to the uh, following day opposite Chios. Then next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. Again, what's the importance of that? We need to understand the commitment and the sacrifice that these men are making all for the sake of the gospel. These last three locations, uh, as they've traveled through there, that's an additional 190 miles added to the 71 that they've already traveled. And in verse 16, why are they doing this? For Paul had decided to set past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now, why does that matter? We're, we're going to see that in a minute. Why was he in a hurry to get to Jerusalem for Pentecost? Well, there are three times in the Jewish calendar that the Jews are expected to be at uh, or to worship at the temple. One is Passover, one is Pentecost, and the other one is the Feast of Tabernacles. For Passover, we tend to see more people uh, at the temple. Uh, the temple gets much more attention at that time. It is their, you know, one of their very high holy days. Um, but what makes that different from Pentecost is that Pentecost takes place at a different part of the season. And it's the part of the season when the weather conditions are much more favorable for travel. So we're going to see more and more people come into Jerusalem during Pentecost than we would in Passover. Now, this is where it's important to think like a missionary. Uh, a missionary wants to reach the largest amount of people from the broadest stretch of land in the quickest amount of time. What better time to do that than Pentecost? Weather's good. People are coming in. Jerusalem is going to be loaded with people who God has prepared to hear the gospel. And if we haven't quite gotten it yet about Paul, this will begin to help us to develop even more of a profile on him. Now, sometimes it's easiest to see who Paul is in contrast to a lot of the things that we see in our culture today. Many in ministries today make the decisions they make for a variety of reasons that are different from Paul's reasons. Often, precious resources like time, money, and energy are poured into having a great band or having the most advanced technology or uh, training the pastor in the most effective theatrics or coming up with renovative ways to draw a crowd and then entertain that crowd, all for the purpose of increasing numbers in their church. Central to their message are often promises of health, wealth, and physical comfort. For Paul, none of these are his focus. 
For years at North Shore Baptist, we had a banner that was strung across the side of the church in the sanctuary uh, on one of the walls, and uh, each of us who got up there to preach would often refer to it. So every now and then, if you see somebody who developed their habits of preaching over at North Shore Baptist, oftentimes we'll point over here. (laughs) There's nothing there. But uh, the way that we were trained, there was a banner here, and it said that the gospel is of utmost importance. The reason that we had that there in huge letters is because that in many places has been forgotten today. In an attempt to build up congregations, in an attempt to increase population and membership, modern day secular, uh, really counterfeit tactics have been implemented. And the unfortunate thing is that what you win people with, you must then continue to use to keep them with. Here at, uh, at LBC, uh, our approach to things are as close to as Paul's and Christ that we can get them. For Paul, it's not entertainment. It's not eloquence. It's not flash. It's not the band. It's not the length of the sermon. It's the gospel. Paul's intentions are consistently on the spread of the gospel, which centers on the cross and what Christ accomplished there. Every decision he makes is made in light of what will most effectively deliver this message to the most amount of people in the most effective way. So, verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Now, this would have been another uh, 63-mile course on foot, or if they had a boat, uh, 48 miles, if the courier sailed across the Gulf of Latmus, Um, Then, once the courier got there, he would then need to find the elders of Ephesus, gather them, motivate them to leave, and bring them back to the same distance to see Paul in Miletus. So again, take note of this tremendous amount of footwork that's going into this effort. This matters because the elders of Ephesus make this trip on foot without hiking boots or paved roads, thus demonstrating their commitment to this calling. How many of you have just walked from your front door out to your car to move it in sandals? How difficult of a trip that is. And I'm in New Hyde Park where there's acorns all over the place. I can't imagine hiking in sandals for over 100 miles. These guys, 63. Um, One mile is enough to make me turn around and go home. What motivated them could have been their love for Paul, could have been their commitment to the gospel and to Christ, could have been their eagerness to fellowship with the brethren, it could have been their excitement about what God is about to do next. Likely, it was a combination of all these things, each of which is a noble reason. Knowing the sacrifice these men are making is of crucial importance. The degree of sacrifice required to make this trip the extreme commitment necessary to complete the travel, and the necessary disregard for basic comforts, all demonstrated by these men, expose them as the real deal. You're not going to get any fakes on this one. How does it expose them in this way? Well, because false teachers with less than noble motives would not likely make this trip. This is a weeding out process. Whether it was intended to be that way or not, that's what it did. Jude tells us that the false teachers are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. 
And by the way, when your primary motive is sensuality, you're not going to walk 63 miles in sandals. They rely on their dreams. They defile the flesh. They reject authority. They blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. They are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. The false teacher is all for the self, for feeding the senses. These guys are far from doing that. An elder who was in it for himself would have likely said, Paul is out of his mind if he thinks we're going to make that trip in sandals. There's a bunch of us and only one of him. Let him make the sacrifice. What kind of sacrifice would it be anyway? We're on his route back to Jerusalem. All he has to do is stop by. Who does he think he is? Why can't he stop by here instead of making us travel to him? We don't hear any of that. Whether Paul consciously designed this as a test of integrity or not, it certainly revealed these men as committed to the cause at a significant cost to themselves. So it's important that when we get to this, the end of this chapter, we know that the gospel has been left in the hands of godly, committed men. Verse 18. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. What is Paul doing here? Is he tooting his own horn and bragging about how wonderful he is? Absolutely not. We will tend to read it that way in our contemporary culture, but that's not what Paul's doing here. Paul is beginning a passage here that goes until the very end of chapter 20, and it's all entirely related. When you first read through this, you may see some disjointed elements. They're not. They're all tied into one central theme. And you'll see what I mean by that in a moment. Whenever you see uh, Paul deliver a message throughout the book of Acts, it tends to be evangelistic in nature. He's telling people about the gospel. This time it's different. Here we get to see Paul transition for a brief time from evangelist to pastor or shepherd. Why is Paul saying these wonderful things about himself in these verses? It is not to put them on a guilt trip or demonstrate his spiritual superiority or manipulate them into doing something. It's not why he's doing this. Rather, it is to show them how to live as Christians. Are we as shepherds not to do that? We are to demonstrate through our own lives and we are to demonstrate through the words that we speak how to live as Christians. Paul will say in his first letter to the Corinthians, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Why? Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Why? Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. Why? That they may be saved. And he finishes that by saying, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. It's important to point out that he doesn't just say, imitate me. Only imitate me as far as I imitate Christ. You don't have Christ living it out in front of you, but you do have me living it out in front of you but only so far as I do what he did, imitate me. 
His words here are not intended to elicit accolade for his ego, nor to gain a following to himself, but are to use his life as a model for following Christ. At this juncture, it may be useful to test our own lives, for me to test my own life, as we seek to lead others into maturity in Christ and ask the question, if everyone in this church followed Christ as I do, what would this congregation look like? Oof. What, what is it that Vody says? If, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. I firmly plant myself in that category. If everyone in this church followed Christ as I do, what would this congregation look like? Oh, to have lived a life like Paul, to be able to say to others, imitate what you see in my life so that you can be confident that you are living as Christ would have you live. So, how did Paul live? It tells us from verses 18 and 19, we see that he served. He did not seek to be served. He was there to give his life away, not to consume. Depression is skyrocketing in our nation among our total population, but especially among our youth. Why is that? I would argue that much of it is because their entertainment and the contemporary literature and their politicians, and sad to say, many of their preachers are telling them that life is all about them. That everything from the books they read in school to the sites they visit online to the messages they hear Sunday morning make everything about them. God didn't design us that way. Jesus said, if you wish to gain life, and he's not talking about biology there. He's not talking about bios life. He's talking about Zoe life. It's a spiritual life which has with it a condition of life, a good condition. If you wish to gain life, give your life away. There is our cure for most of today's depression. Serve others and stop seeking all the time to be served. Paul served. Paul served the Lord. His service was not simply humanitarian. He didn't just tend to the physical or emotional needs of people. At the heart of his convictions was the understanding that every soul will spend somewhere in eternity and their destiny will be determined by what they do with Christ. He served, he served the Lord, and he served the Lord with all humility, tears, and trials. This is not a name it, claim it, health, wealth, blab it, grab it type uh, approach to ministry that Paul had here. This is extremely counterculture. His focus was not on self-gratification. He did not feel owed. He did not seek accolade. He did not do what he did for personal gain. He counted progress for the kingdom and the sake of Christ, the only progress that mattered. But even more than that, he pursued the spread of the gospel in spite of the pain and suffering that it brought into his life. Pride and selfishness would never subject itself to tears and trials. Humility understands that tending to the Lord's mission negates any concern for the self and that comfort should never be the determining factor when considering the Lord's work. When counseling a student in my school where I'm the headmaster, when I'm counseling them to obey the Lord and seeking reconciliation with an enemy, which is uncomfortable, or asking for forgiveness from someone, which is uncomfortable, or confessing sin to their parents, which is really uncomfortable, 
I often remind the student that I'm not asking anything of them that I would not demand of myself. That's exactly what Paul's doing here. This is how I lived. Now live as I lived imitating Christ. Imitate me, but only as I imitate Christ. Finally, in this section, Paul points out that the trials he is facing are at the hands of the Jews. He does not mean all Jewish people. Rather, he is referring to those of the Jewish religion, they tended to be the religious elite, who are willing to turn to violence in order to protect their religious ideas and agendas. Keep in mind that one of Paul's objectives for this trip is to deliver much-needed monies given by Gentile believers to the persecuted Jewish believers. Verse 20. Remember how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The word shrink here is very significant. It denotes a motive for steering away from something, that motive being fear. We see a lot of this today in our modern church culture, but it is nothing new, nothing new under the sun. Many who hold positions of authority in churches today will shrink away from declaring the full counsel of God because they fear the consequences or at least they fear what they assume the consequences will be. Those who seek to gain fame or fortune through their ministerial position will shrink away from addressing the uncomfortable things in God's word because it may drive followers away along with their accolade and their resources. Those who seek to gain comfort, safety, or prominence through their ministerial position will shrink away from covering the entire counsel of God for fear of demeaning comments and rejection. It can even be politically or socially dangerous, and I can attest to this, to adhere to God's teaching on certain issues such as marriage or gender or race because it could cost the minister of the gospel his entire ministry. Parents, students, teachers come into my school. I make it clear up front. There are men and there are women. Never the twain shall meet. Marriage is between a man and a woman. There's not another option. Those are fighting words in this culture today. You stand on the gospel, you're headed for trouble. Paul says he didn't shrink away from speaking whatever was profitable. What does he mean by profitable? Paul tells Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. For correcting, for rebuking, for teaching, for training in righteousness that the man of God be equipped for all good works. Paul did not shrink from proclaiming, from teaching, or from reinforcing anything that would be considered God's word. He points out that neither circumstances nor context define his message. He preached God's whole counsel in public and in private to Jews and to Greeks. And his message was the same everywhere and to all people. Repent of your sin toward God and place your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. To this day, many in the Christian community continue to struggle with this notion that the Jewish people are saved via a different means than everyone else. Paul clarifies this in Romans 1, 16 to 17, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek 
For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Not by law, not by biological privilege, but by faith. Verse 22. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Oh, goody, that's what I have to look forward to. There are endless joys. Don't get Paul wrong here. There are endless joys to be experienced when ministering for God. The rewards are great and they are numerous. There's nothing like using God's word to save somebody's marriage, to turn their kid away from drugs, or best one is really to lead someone to salvation in Christ. As wonderful as those experiences are though I would easily forfeit every one of them to avoid the heartbreak the rejection the suffering and the persecution that comes with preaching the gospel unless it's true that's at the heart of what led me to Christ I was brought up in a religious home Uh, I went to church just about every Sunday of my life And when I was about 13, somebody made the mistake of teaching me about the early church martyrs. And I thought, man, these guys are either nuts or they know something that I don't. And I would come to realize that they knew something that I didn't know, even though I'd been brought up in church all my life. About four years later is when the light bulb came on and I realized what those guys were standing for, and that was the gospel. Now, Paul is not afraid of the dire outcome that he knows he is headed into, just like those martyrs who had such an impact on my life. And he's not afraid of that because he knows the gospel is worth it. Verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He knows the souls of people are much greater value than his comfort, safety, and even his survival. How does he know he's headed for trouble? Not because of earthly predictions made by mere men, but because the Holy Spirit, who does not lie, has made it clear to him. He knows what he's headed into. It's not a maybe anymore. He continues, verse 25. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. You elders who just traveled miles on foot to meet me here, this is it, guys. I, didn't, I don't know the details of what's about to happen to me, where I'm going, but I do know that it will end, and you'll never see me again. It's been said that if you ever want to know what matters most to a man, listen closely to his final words, and these are them. Verse 26, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul is saying that he is innocent of the blood of all because he declared the whole counsel of God. As he stated before, he held nothing back from anyone. He preached the satisfying and encouraging things. He also preached the uncomfortable, convicting, and hard things. 
if I were to say something like this, that I am innocent of the blood of all, I would be making reference to the fact that I've never killed anybody or thought of killing anyone, uh, or at least figuratively that I was not involved in the demise of anyone. That's not what Paul's saying here. Paul is using a judicial term here that harkens back to when Pilate symbolically washed his hands of the blood of Jesus, meaning that the decision to crucify one that he deemed to be an innocent man would not be his decision and the guilt would rest on those who do make that decision. Paul's hands are clean. He's preached the entire counsel of God. Paul is innocent of the blood all uh, of all because he spent it all. He preached the gospel to everyone, everywhere, regardless of circumstances or heritage. Again, as we reflect on our own lives, what would it be like to be able to end our lives being able to say the same thing? One of the main reasons we preach exegetically at LBC is that in so doing, we are forced to declare the whole counsel of God. We, we dive into a book and we preach it from Chapter 1, verse 1, until the whole thing is done and we hit everything in between. And sometimes we run into some very difficult things. I remember uh, preaching at North Shore Baptist a long time ago and spending seven hours in an office with Alec Millen trying to figure out what that verse on head coverings meant. Interestingly enough, everybody decided to go on vacation that Sunday and left me with the passage. Now... While there is a place for topical preaching, maybe at a conference that has a particular theme, or on a Sunday morning when there's a guest pastor, or when there's an argument or an urgent matter to address, exegetical preaching should be by far the norm. I personally would not join a church that takes a different approach to preaching the word and would be irresponsible to counsel anyone else to do otherwise. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. It is interesting that Paul tells these elders to begin their care for the church by, first of all, paying careful attention to themselves. These may be the best men, but they are still men at best. The elder who forgets that he is still a descendant of Adam and begins to let his guard down, who thinks he is above the rest, who thinks he is no longer vulnerable to grave sin, could become the most dangerous person in the church. Keep an eye on us. He needs to regularly self-reflect and consider if his motives for serving are pure, if his pursuit of growth in knowledge, understanding, wisdom, and righteousness is intentionally uh, continuing, and if he has a stable group of mature believers who will say tough things to him if he gets out of line. Secondly, he is to pay careful attention to the flock of which he has been made a steward, not by his choice but by, uh, or by man's choice, but by God's choice. He is to care for the church of God, which God paid for with the highest of cost to himself. Since the church's redemption was important enough to God that he would pay the price of blood for it, then its continued care requires the same from those whom he has appointed to caretake for it. So what is the primary threat to the church that the elders need to face? Verse 29, 
I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Referencing Jude again, these fierce wolves are false teachers who creep in unnoticed. They creep in because they look like us, they sound like us, and they're hard to detect, and they're good at it. The individual who is trained in God's word and experienced in church life will be most effective in detecting these false teachers. False teachers are not false teachers, though, because they have simply concluded different things from the scriptures that you and I have studied but because they have an entirely different motivation. The false teacher is driven by selfish and sensual gain. It always goes back to the senses. Paul tells the Philippians, verse 18 uh, of Philippians, uh, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things, not on heavenly things. The scary thing is that these walls will not only come in among you from without, but they will also rise up from among you from within. Time and time again, I have seen longstanding members and uh, church attenders rise up and divide the brethren, and it always happens Uh, that it's when an individual gets involved in some kind of sin that they do not wish to relinquish. The moment that even a professing believer gets a hold of a sin that they love more than they love God is the moment that that person begins to develop a military campaign against God's people who will have no choice but to oppose that person's sin. They will do everything they can to protect it. Both those who attack the church from without and those who attack from within will arise and are driven by their fleshly appetites. They will harm God's people and must be removed from the congregation's midst. Verse 31, therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Be careful not to fall back on your own reasoning or your own resources. Coming to faith in Christ and growing in Christ are spiritual productions that are achieved spiritually, not by man, but by God. They're not accomplished through earthly means, but through God himself and his word. Verse 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, Again, this is something that a false teacher would not be able to claim because that's why they're in this. Verse 34, you yourselves know that the hands ministered to my, that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Again, more things that a false teacher would not be able to claim. Take note that Paul is continuing with his pastoring of these men. He's not virtue signaling here. He's not bragging of his accomplishments or of his humility or of his heroic sacrifices. In summary, what Paul is doing 
is he's saying that all he is saying in this passage that we studied today for one reason, that is to protect the church. Paul communicated when we started to look at this from verse 13 to the end. He's communicated, I've lived the gospel. I've taught the whole gospel. I've held nothing back for fear. Imitate me, therefore, as I have imitated Christ. Bad guys are coming to tear apart the church, and you have to be on your best game to stop them. Protect the church. Verse 36, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Oh, that we would be this tightly knit with our brethren, all of our brethren, those from LBC as well as those without. Let's pray to that end, but let's remember, as we hear Paul's final words here, his big concern here was not anything other than, guys, elders, protect the church. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, enable us uh, on a level that is producible only by your Holy Spirit to protect the church. Lord, give us wisdom, give us insight, give us discernment, give us boldness and courage. Put us in the right places at the right time to defend your church, to defend the gospel, to defend your word, to know it well, to teach it well. And Lord, help us to not back down for the sake of comfort or because we're fearful. Lord, as we leave here, would you please bring to mind what we've heard from your word today that we may further discuss it and contemplate it and be changed by it. And Lord, we do ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, change us, cause us to be more like Christ in everything that we think, say, and do. And we hand ourselves over to you and ask you to do, once again, great and mighty things in and through us. In Christ's name, amen.